Open your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews 11. I want to continue our discussion about faith, which we began as we looked at John 6 a few weeks ago, where Jesus said that the work of God was to believe on him, which has led us to talk about faith for the past few weeks. Here in... um, Hebrews, what did I say, what chapter? 11, 11 or 12, okay, go to Hebrews 10, <laughs> we're going to get into 11, but let's begin with the very end of 10, Paul says in verse 35, therefore, of Hebrews 10, therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Amen. Now the just shall live by faith. Or some virgins may say, my just one, the just, shall live by faith. And if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. I want to talk today about living by faith. This, uh, this statement here in Hebrews about the just living by faith is actually from Habakkuk chapter 2. And it's also quoted by Paul in Romans 1 when he's, uh, before he gives his exposition of the gospel. So it's quoted three times in scriptures, which is important. It tells me it's an important concept, living by faith. What does living by faith mean? Let me read a brief quote to you by uh, Charles Hodge. He says this, he says, uh, life, uh, living by faith, life includes all our activity as rational, moral, and religious beings. Did you get that? All activity as rational, moral, and religious beings. Living by faith is to have our whole activity, inward and outward, permanently and characteristically determined by faith. It matters not whether we mean uh, by the objects of faith or by the principle of faith. For the conscious exercise of the principle is on the objects. To live by faith means every area of our life is governed by faith or that we see everything and act according to the principle of faith. Now, if you remember, when we talked about saving faith, we talked about the act of faith of knowing the gospel, assenting to the gospel, and then trusting or believing the gospel. So saving faith is when we know the contents, we assent that it's true, but then we embrace it, we trust, we rely, we depend, if you will, on the truth of the gospel. Really, we depend and rely on Jesus himself to be saved. Amen? The act of faith in Jesus at the moment of conversion becomes for the Christian the principle of faith that we live by. Same principle. The the saving faith that we exercise in embracing Jesus is the same kind of faith that we live by in the Christian life. For the just or those who are justified will live by faith. According to Dabney, this principle of faith... um, is what he calls a habitus. That is, it's a habitual 
disposition. It's a constant attitude that abides and guides. It is what Paul refers to as the spirit of faith. So we get saved by faith, and we live by faith, and Hebrews even speaks of those who die in faith. So we don't just believe in Jesus at the moment of conversion and then not live by faith. We, we enter into a life of faith at the moment we exercise faith in believing in Jesus. For the just will live by faith. So we are not only saved past tense by faith, but we live present tense by that same faith. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Right? So the question is, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked that question. We're going to come back to Hebrews 11 in just a moment, but let's go back to 2 Corinthians, and I want you to see... Paul gives us a, a uh, I guess in a way you could say a definition of what this means. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, right before he says that we walk by faith and not by sight, in chapter 4 and verse 16, are you all there? He says this, therefore we do not lose heart. Now we, he's primarily talking about the apostles and how badly they're treated. He's talking about his struggles and, and the trials and all the things he's going through. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart in spite of this. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, I love that. If you read Paul's life, you think, that's not a light affliction. That's heavy-duty affliction. But seen through the eyes of faith, it was a light affliction, Right? For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is what Paul means by walking by faith. It's a pretty good definition. However, definitions don't do justice to what Uh, we mean by walking by faith. So now let's go back to Hebrews 11, and we're going to read uh, large portions of this chapter, because what we have in Hebrews 11 is a description of what it really means. We have examples of what it means to live or to walk by faith. So in Hebrews 11, uh, the author says in verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the world were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he, being dead, still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away, so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. That's awesome, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to be taken up? For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him or to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. Then he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 11, by faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Let's go on. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who, who excuse me, And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed will be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him as in a figurative sense or as in a type. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Uh, Let's go on to Moses. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? But the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tor- tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Amen? They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, but having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. What a great uh, description of what it means to live by faith. Let me just make some observations on this chapter here in Hebrews 11. First of all, let's talk about the object of faith. When we talk about faith in the Christian life, um, the object of our faith fundamentally is God and his word. Amen? 
God and his word. Verse 3, for by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. By the word of God. Here it says in verse 7 that Noah, when he was divinely warned, divinely warned, moved with godly fear. In other words, in other words God spoke. He responded to God's word. Abraham was called by God's word. He responded to God's word. The foundation of our faith is God and his word. As I pointed out last week, we can have a whole lot of faith, but if it's in the wrong object, it's not biblical faith, right? We can be sincere and sincerely wrong. I remember when I was a young believer, I got my heart broken. I was in love with a uh, young lady, and she decided that um, she didn't want to risk marrying somebody who might go into the ministry. And so, uh, but I had convinced myself that it was God's will that I marry this person. But I don't, I don't have a word from God on that. But I convinced myself. And, and even after she got married, I was still convinced I was going to marry her. I was so convinced I prayed for her husband to die. <laughs> so I could marry her. Because I had... I had deluded myself into believing that was God's will. That wasn't faith. That was presumption. That was presumption. And a lot of Christians get this confused. And I'll hear people say, well, we're just trusting God for this, we're trusting God for that. They don't have a word from God. They don't, that faith is, that's wishful thinking. Okay? That's wanting something very badly and convincing yourself that because you want it really badly, God wants it too. It's amazing to me how often people say, God told me, God led me, it's God's will, when it just happens to so nicely align with what they want. I only know of one person where somebody said, God called me to take a job where they made less. It's always God's leading me to take the better job. He's always leading me to get the bigger house, to get the nicer thing. Why is that? Because we are convincing ourselves that God wills what we want. But God wills what God wills. And it's revealed in his word. That's the foundation of our faith. Thus saith the Lord. Amen? Thus saith the Lord. That you can stand on. Why? Because the object of our faith being God and his word, it equally means our, our faith is based upon God and his attributes. God does not lie. Amen? I love this passage in, in Titus, if you want to go there. In Titus, Paul says... Uh, he refers in chapter 1, verse 2, of the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. It's beautiful in the original, because in the original, it reads like this, the unlying God. In hope of eternal life, which the unlying God promised before time. 
It's not that he cannot lie. It's, it's who he is, the unlying God. Because he is truth. Right? And being truth, he is equally faithful. God cannot utter a word and break that word. He can't do that because to break one's word is to lie. See, we think of lying as deceiving. Intentionally deceiving. Well, that's one form of a lie. But if you promise and break the promise, that's a lie too. And so God, if God gives the word because God is true, he cannot break his own word. He cannot lie. He must fulfill his promise. Now, granted, some promises are conditional. Some promises have an if clause. If you do this, or if you exercise faith, I will do this. But if God speaks, he cannot break his word, or otherwise he would be the lying God, which he is not. Amen? <laughs> to trust and to believe means we, our hope and our faith is rest, resting on nothing less than God in all of his glorious attributes. His, his veracity, his faithfulness, his ability, right? Even, in the, even back here in, in Hebrews, it says when Sarah believed God in 11.11, it says she did this, why? Because she judged God faithful who had promised. That's why she believed. God gave a promise, and because of who God was, not because of the content of the promise. Are you, anybody hearing me? Because we learned in Romans 4 that the content of the promise was so overpowering that it says Paul did not stagger in unbelief. In other words, it was such a profound, weighty, unbelievable promise that the only way that they could believe is by looking at the author of the promise. And if God said it, it must be true because of who God is. And God is faithful. He does not lie. He always keeps his word. So Sarah believed because she judged God faithful and he's the one who promised. It says here that Abraham believed in verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise up his son. There's another attribute of God, his power and his ability. So when we think about faith in the Christian life, we have to understand that the foundation of our faith is God himself, God himself in all of his attributes. And the more you ponder it, the more you realize what a grievous sin unbelief is. Because sin says God is a liar. Unbelief says God is not able, he's not powerful. Sin says God is not wise. Sin says God does not know all things. Unbelief is a grievous sin. Faith is an affirmation of God's character in all of his glorious attributes. Amen? That's the foundation of our faith. God himself and his promises, his word. But I also want to point out that when we think about the object of our faith, we also are talking about the realm of the unseen. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4. We don't look at the things seen, we look at the things that are unseen. Don't look at the things temporal, we look at the things that are, that are eternal. 
We see the same thing here in Romans 11. In Romans 11, notice verse 7 regarding Noah, it says, By faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. Now, some people think that not yet seen means it's simply that it hadn't happened yet. God warned him about something that hadn't happened yet, and it may mean that. But also some believe that the time of Noah, in fact, the, the, the atmosphere of the earth was very different than it is now. It was like a greenhouse. And that, in fact, it, it didn't rain then. That everything was watered through dew. Okay? And so when, if, when, if God says to Noah, there's going to be a flood, it's going to rain, there's going to be a flood, and Noah's going to be, what's rain? What's the flood? Things not yet seen. Things not understood, at least from a human perspective. Yet he moved with fear. So God makes promises of things that we, we may not understand, things that we don't see because he's promising something regarding the future, or maybe something we've not seen because we've just never seen it before. But that doesn't mean it's not possible. Uh, Hebrew says of Moses in verse 27 of this chapter, it says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Just by the very nature of the fact that God is the object of our faith, we are putting our faith in that which is unseen, right? We don't see God. He's the invisible God. Now we see his word, but in fact... His word speaks of things that are unseen. You know what I'm saying? So we're looking at the invisible through the eye of faith. This also means that we, the object of our faith is often the miraculous. Many of the things recounted here in the book of Hebrews were just plain miracles. Plain miracles. Some were not. Some were just things that hadn't happened yet. Some were just acts of simple obedience, but many of them had to do with things either unknown, unseen in the future, but things that miraculous. So um, you think about the birth of Abraham, excuse me, the birth to Abraham and Sarah. It was pretty miraculous, right? They were old, physically unable, literally physically unable to conceive, and yet they conceived. It was just a flat-out miracle. Flat out, right? Think about Jericho. Have you ever, you ever read the story about, we won't take the time, you ever read the story about the Jericho? So God tells them to march around Jericho and blow, you know, once a day for seven days, and then the seventh day to march around seven times, then to blow horns, and then the walls are going to fall down. I don't know about you, but phew, that would be a rough one. Uh, you know, you ever watch some of these History Channel things about Bible stories? How they're going to explain what really happened, you know? Well, we think we figured it out. There was an earthquake that day, or there was this thing. Or there was a flaw in the... We've discovered this, this mason, this stones from the... And those, there were flaws in the stones, and if you hit the right notes, then everything's going to, you know... Anything but a miracle. Anything that God intervened and did what he said he would do. You know what I'm saying? 
you see it with, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, and you see it with all these, all these explanations of how this could have happened without God. I think sometimes unbelievers have more faith than believers. <laughs> Their faith is just in science. How many articles do you see when you're scanning the headlines? Science says. Science says. You know what science told me this week? Science told me this week that monogamy is bad. That's what science told me this week. Pretty much, if you add up all the headlines about what science says, you're, gonna, you're basically going to find it. Science tells you everything in the Bible is not true. That's what it comes down to, science says. Clearly, the, the birth of Isaac was a miracle. The, the survival of Moses was a miracle. The, the walls of Jericho falling down was a miracle. To, to exercise faith is to exercise faith in God who works miracles. Why? Because God is able. He's able to do it. It's really that simple. He is able. So the object of our faith to review this is God and his word, God and his attributes, the unseen and the miraculous. Now let me make, uh, I want to make a, a note on this before I move on, and that is this. I want to make a note about faith versus reason. Um, C.S. Lewis, in a number of places, I didn't dig up the quote, talks about faith versus reason as if faith and reason are opposed. And he says, no, that's not really the case. The, the challenge to faith isn't reason. The challenge to faith is feeling. It's our emotions that tell us not to believe, not our faith. Why? I want you to hear this if you don't hear anything else. Ready? When you calculate what is possible, you have to include God in the calculation. Very often we look at a situation, we say this is possible and this is possible, but the problem is we're leaving God out of the equation. Well, that's never going to happen. No, that won't happen. No, that can't happen. Well, not if you leave God out of the equation. But once you add God into the equation, and if you add the God of the Bible with his attributes into the equation, well, that changes the entire formula, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And that which is, appears impossible is surely possible now. I've told you the story before. I was talking to a couple number of years ago about their finances. I said, well, why don't we pray that your husband gets a raise? Before I had the words out of my mouth, she said, that will never happen. And I said, well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it won't now. Because you have absolutely no faith. No faith at all. If you say that will never happen, or I can't do that, or that will never occur, then you are leaving God out of the equation. That's the problem. That's not faith. That is unbelief. I know, I know, you're a realist. I get it. I understand. But if you're a biblical realist, you can't leave God out of the equation. Because God is the most important fundamental element in the equation. He is the, the, the digit you begin with. 
You begin with God and then you calculate out. You don't leave God out. Say, well, that will never happen. I've seen God do amazing things. Amazing things. So faith isn't against reason. Now, now some of the things God does is like, wow, that blows my mind. That just beyond, kind of like that's beyond reason. Like Jericho. There's no reasonable explanation. It wasn't they hit the F note and that made the, you know. That's not what happened. Okay? So, so trumpets and walls falling down, is that reasonable? Not really. Okay? So in that sense, it's beyond reason to me how that would work. But once you put God in the equation, it's not hard at all. When they blew on the trumpet, God went on the wall. They went down. Not hard to understand at all. Not hard at all. The enemy of our faith is a reason. The enemy, the enemy of our faith is feeling. Because real faith involves that third element I've been talking about. That after you have knowledge and then you have assent, then you have to trust. It's, it's the, the relying upon part is where emotions say no. And if you're a student of the word and you really understand who God is, your mind often will tell you yes, but your feelings will tell you no. That's the battle between faith and unbelief in the human heart. It's not, it's not reason. Nothing is unreasonable if God's in that calculus. It's not unreasonable to say you could get a promotion even though your boss is a jerk. Why? Because God is greater than your boss. The fact of the matter is, for many of us, our God is too small. A little bitty God, a little bitty idol that we put up. He's littler than our boss. He's littler than the corporation. He's littler than, than this situation. He's littler than that situation. A little bitty God. And we say he's the Lord of Lords. That means he's the Lord of everything. Everything. Do you understand what that means? Every situation, every power, every dominion. Every boss, every corporation, every country, he is greater than and is Lord over. We cannot say such and such is not possible unless it's a violation of God's character. Unless it's a violation of his direct word. But many of the things that we say are statements of unbelief because we're leaving God out of the equation. God is abundantly able to do exceedingly, abundantly above everything you think or ask. That's the word of God. I just quoted the word of God. Can anybody else clap for the word of God? That's the word of God, not my word. Not my word, God's word. Beyond what I can think, I can think of some pretty crazy things. I can think of some awesome things. God is able to do even beyond that. Pretty awesome, huh? And of course, this leads into the whole discussion about does God work miracles today? 
Let me just ask you a question. Are you a Christian? Raise your hand. Some people haven't raised their hands. We have some non-Christians back there. Steve Sanders isn't saved. Lisa's not saved. We finally got the confession, guys. If you're a Christian, you've been born again, so you have experienced the miracle. To take a, a wretched sinner like myself to pray from head to toe, as the Word of God says, and then to transform that person into someone that loves his wife and loves and nurtures his children and loves God and his word and God's people is a fantastic miracle. Fantastic miracle. So if you're really a Christian, you, you, not only should you believe in miracles, or should, you should believe in miracles because you are one. But let me ask another question to you Christians. Do you ever pray? I want to see hands. All right, Steve prays. <laughs> Not say, but he prays. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, Mike Kumrell doesn't pray, but Steve, all right, he's got, okay. He was hugging his wife over there. Okay, I just want you to, you talk about reason. Okay, you with me? Are you following me? I'm not sure why you pray. Now, there's different kinds of prayer, right? You can just spend time with God and say, hey, God, how's it going today? I'm doing good. I like the weather today. Thanks. You know, one of those kind of prayers. You can have confession. You confess your sin. That's prayer. You can worship. That's prayer. Just praise him. But if you ever ask God for anything, you are asking for a miracle. You understand? Do you understand? If you're asking God for anything, you're asking for divine intervention into your life. Or divine intervention into somebody else's life. You're asking something in the natural order to be altered for your benefit. That's a miracle. Now, I'm not talking about all the crazy things that people do, you know, the various ministries that are out there, you know, come to our thing, pay 500 bucks and you'll get healed and all that. I'm talking about I'm talking about the reality of the fact that God is alive and he works in the lives of his people. And if I didn't believe that, I would never utter a prayer. What is the point of asking God for things if I don't believe he'll answer? And if I do believe he's going to answer, do you, I mean, it's, it, that's crazy when you think about it. That the God of the universe is going to pause for a moment while you're talking to him. It's like, okay, I'll intervene in this vast machinery of the universe because you've spoken to me. And I'll do it in such a way that it accords with all the other billions of prayers I'm hearing. (laughs) And also it will accord with my eternal plan. Man, that's a miracle. One prayer getting answered is a miracle. And yet he answers millions and millions and millions and millions all the time. Of course we believe in miracles. If we didn't, we couldn't pray. Well, there's a whole lot more I'd like to say, but we don't have time, and I don't want to go long again. I went long last week.
But I would like to quote this scripture. Go to, and we'll pick this up at a later date. Go to Matthew chapter 17. 17. Uh, Matthew 17 is the account of the transfiguration. You're all familiar with that, right? Jesus goes up to the mount with um, is it Peter and John, Peter and James. Peter, James, and John. <laughs> Got them all. He's transfigured. He's shining. He's in his glory, if you will. He's having a conversation with, and then Moses and Elijah appear. That would be an awesome meeting, wouldn't it? Jesus, Moses, Elisha, Peter, James, John, and you. That'd be cool. That's a Bible study. That's a life group. A lot of life there, baby. So, so, so the, the story of, of the account, I should say, because story sounds like fiction. It's not. The account of the transfiguration is given. And, and so Jesus' glory, and then we see Moses and Elijah appear, uh, you know, this bright light, shining light, and then the God the Father speaks from heaven. This voice comes. He says, this is my beloved. He listened to him or hear him. Pretty heavy stuff, right? And then it's immediately followed with this story of this child who's, who's uh, got a demon problem. And his disciples couldn't cast the demon out. So they, they, Jesus comes down, it says in verse 18 of, of 17, it says, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. The child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we, <clears throat> why could we not cast them out? And Jesus said, because of your unbelief, or your version might say, little faith. Lack of faith. For surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, I think unbelief is a better translation actually than little faith because he just says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, the point of the mustard seed is that's little, right? Little. He's saying really you only need a little faith. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. These are the words of Jesus to his church. They are staggering words, are they not? Staggering words. And the weight of it feels very heavy if you put the emphasis on our faith. But that's not what Jesus does. He puts the emphasis on the object of our faith. Because he says our faith only has to be like a mustard seed. As long as our faith is in God. It's the object of our faith that matters. Right? It's the object of our faith. But we must use it. Faith must be exercised. Just like when someone gets saved. As I've said many times, I have led many Christians to Jesus. That is, from assent to trust. It's not enough to say God is able as a general proposition. It's not enough to say God is faithful as a general proposition. 
It's not enough to say God is powerful as a general proposition. Or God is omniscient and wise as a general proposition. Faith means now, in this moment I am standing in, confronted with this mountain, now God is able. Now God is faithful. Now God is wise. Amen? Amen. It's in the moment. Faith is not what I'm doing when I'm sitting in my study pondering theology. That's not faith. Faith is when I'm living life and when I'm confronted with whether at that moment I will trust everything I learned in my theology. Because you can read volumes and volumes on God's attributes, and I hope you do. But it ought to increase your practical faith to be able to, in the moment, believe. You see? And we shouldn't be saying things like, God is not able. Or it will never happen. Because those are statements of rank unbelief. And yet, people say them all the time. But if you ask them, do you believe in God? Oh, I believe in God. They believe God is capable to do anything in the abstract and nothing in the moment. Why? Because in the moment is when the emotions come in. In the moment is when your faith is challenged. In the moment is when you feel weak or confused or in the dark. In the moment is when Satan will attack you. So we must believe God in the moment, whatever that moment is for you. A moment of sickness, financial trial, loss, heartache, betrayal. We must believe God in the moment. Amen? And if you've never seen a miracle, then you need to begin to pray in faith and you will see God work. Because he promises that if we believe, that we will receive. Those are his words, not mine. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed your word to us. How precious it is, how true it is, and how humanly unbelievable it is. To think that you would listen to us when we speak to you. It is truly astounding when we contemplate who you are, Father, in all of your majesty and glory. But you listen to your children and you hear their cry and you see their faith and you respond. Lord, these are mysteries to me. I don't understand not only how, but even why. But we believe your word because your word is true. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who believe everything your word says and we would believe it today. We would believe it now. And I ask that you would increase our faith with power, as Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. Increase the work of faith with power in our lives. 
And we ask it not because we want more things from you, but we ask it because we want you to receive more glory through us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory alone. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.